give yourselves a hand, yeah. <laughs> so, um, anyway, yeah, so we are in the middle of this series called God Came Down, and, and we're exploring our Christmas series here, and this is the, a season of Advent, and Advent means... It literally means coming, and it's an ancient Christian tradition where you spend about the month leading up to Christmas to prepare your hearts and to reflect on what it means that God came down. And, and so that's what we're, we'll be exploring, and last week we kicked off the series uh, with an exploration of what it meant when the angels appeared to Joseph and Mary. So this week we're going to continue with that and ask the question of what does it mean that God came down in, in, in some of the unlikely people that he encountered? And, and so we're going to be jumping in with that in just a moment. I ask you to pray with me as we get started. God, we thank you again for this morning. I thank you uh, for the joy of the Christmas season. I thank you uh, just for the fun of being together with family. I thank you for the great things that you're doing in our midst uh, here at the church. And I thank you that you came down to transfer, transform and change our lives. And so God, we give you this time now and ask that my words would be your words and that you would meet us in this place. So we give you this time now. In your name, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And as you, as you find your way to Matthew chapter 2, I also want to say this is uh, a great time of year here even at the church. And I want to uh, just call out a couple of people. Uh, yesterday we had the Women's Tea, which is an annual event here. And this place was filled, uh, it, it packed all the way with tables. And, and the women had a great time yesterday. And we just want to, Sandy Byers and May, I don't know where they are. I think they took a vacation to Hawaii. Um, but they coordinated the event um, and it was a great event, so I want to say thank you to both of them and all the guys who got to serve. My wife yesterday said, you know, this is kind of like a men's ministry event because all the guys get to hang out and, and serve together. And, and, and so that's kind of the advantage of it. For, for me yesterday, they said, Ryan, we got to think of something that you won't mess up. So I was in charge of hot water, and, and so... I made the hot water because they, I guess I get myself into it all the time, maybe, I don't know. But um, so I, that was what I was in charge of, and, and I think most of the women had hot water yesterday. Um, but it was, it was actually really fun for me not only to serve, but to hang out with the other guys. And, and uh, so it was kind of like a men's event behind the scenes. And so um, anyway, so thank you all of you who participated in that to make it just such a, a great kickoff to the, the Christmas season. So yeah, that's for the guys. All right, so uh, I've, I was thinking the other day, my son asked me, we, we were talking, he said, what is like one of the most Christmassy places that you could go to? What's somewhere on the earth that's like the most Christmassy, has the best feeling? Because we, we saw a clip of someone ice skating in Central Park in New York, and, and it was you know one of the movies that had the snow falling. Like that's, it's kind of hard to beat how Christmassy that is. Maybe the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Square. Um, you know, when if you get lost in New York from your parents, that's where you go. You find them. And a couple of you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So uh, th- that's very Christmassy. I know one year I was in Vienna, Austria, right up, leading up into Christmas. That felt really Christmassy, kind of sound of music with snow. And, and so you had the white lights and the, the, the trees and all this. For me too, my first few years living, I lived in Minnesota. So Charlie Brown Christmas, you know, the cartoon, that takes place in Minnesota. And I look at it like that. So it looked like our neighborhoods and it always had snow. And, and so, um, and there the dogs can talk and do all kinds of cool things. So th- that, that felt very Christmassy to me. Um, maybe Macy's on 34th Street, just because of the movies, gives you that, that feeling. But I was also thinking, 
to me, it's like even in London is one of those Christmassy places. You have the brick buildings, the smokestack, just the Charles Dickens kind of makes it feel Christmassy. And when I was thinking about that, I was reminded of this story of one time when I was in London with my family. We were living overseas, and we were moving back to America. We had a few days in London, and we were kind of touring, had a really great time, a good day there. And we ended the day, we went to this place called Harrods in London. It's kind of like one of the giant department stores. And, and uh, so we went there, and that, that feels very Christmassy of a good place. So we went there, and I had, it was my wife and then all three of our boys. The youngest was still a baby. He was in a stroller. And uh, we were kind of going around, and we went to the kids. There's a floor for all toys and stuff like that. So we went there and played with everything for a while. Where my wife, I don't know where she was during that time, but she found us eventually. And, um, but now when we left, we decided, um, they have like these famous escalators there. Why it's famous, I don't really know. It's like an Egyptian theme and they're old. And so we said, hey, let's go down those famous escalators because we're pretty cheesy tourists. We always do what is like the cliche thing to do. That's why we were in Herod's in the first place. So they went to go down this escalator, but I had been in the stroller and I wasn't able to go down. So I said, go all the way down to the bottom. And uh, Ben and I will find an elevator, we'll meet you there, but just stay at the bottom of this escalator. So uh, Sarah and the boys, the older two boys, went down, and Ben and I found the escalator. We had to go through just all over to find there. Finally got to the bottom floor, went over to where they, we thought were, <laughs> and started looking around and couldn't find them. We thought, okay, is there another escalator? Is there, did we somehow, what happened? And so we kind of looked and, and um, there was a security guy there with us and, he, and I said, can you like make an announcement? He goes, no, people get lost in here all the time. We don't announce anything. I'm like, okay, <laughs> great. And, and so he said, okay, we'll, we'll stay put. And, and we ran, we, we didn't make it to the bottom floor because the elevator didn't go there. But so we ran down, looked there, they weren't there, came back up. And finally the security guy says, hey, I, I will go down to guest services for you. It's right below us. You stay here, so if they come by, you'll see them. I'll go down and, and check in for you and come back. I'm like, that's great. Thank you so much. So he does that. He comes back. He goes, hey, down there at guest services, there's a wife with two kids who are looking for their dad and another kid. I'm like, great. He says, but they found their person. <laughs> I was like, are you serious? And, and, and so... That didn't work out. So a, a long story short, or a short story longer than it needs to be, I don't know. But um, either way, what happened is it went 45 minutes, couldn't find them, an hour. And at this point, I went to call, and earlier I went to call my wife. Um, so I called her, and I had her phone in the stroller with me. <laughs> yeah. So it got to the point where I just said, and, and this is a bad feeling, right? And I knew, like, they're, they're okay. They're, gonna, they're going to be okay, probably. And... Um, and I have Ben, and I started thinking, like, well, I can raise him by myself. We'll be fine. I mean, it's not that hard. Oh, you know. <laughs> but so what I had, the decision we finally made is that the one thing we both know where to find each other is back at the hotel. So I just I got Ben, and it was feeding time, and I, I didn't have what he needed, but so I went and got, got, bought some milk for him, and, and we took, and it was like a 45-minute by, by underground and bus to get back to the hotel, which was at the airport. And I thought, well, she's in central London with two, two little kids. What could go wrong? So I went back. And the whole ride going back, you just have this feeling like, oh, this is not good. And even though I was reasonably sure they would make it back, halfway through the ride, I realized I also have her purse and her money. Come on. <laughs> 
And then I'm thinking, what would I do? Well, what I would do, we just lived in the Middle East. So in the Middle East, if you want something, you keep asking and you find, you, you just get what you want. You just keep begging and fighting and whatever. So I thought, I would just go to the underground and explain myself. And then if they didn't let me on, I would sneak on. And, and so we, I, I wouldn't really if they didn't let us. But I, they would let you in, especially with two little kids. I would make their faces dirty and go, look, come on, how can, how can I get back? And I thought my wife would at least do that. She would hate it but she could do it. And so I just thought, okay, we'll go back. We got to the hotel. Ben and I started walking through the lobby. And at this point, I'm thinking, you know, I'm glad Ben made it back, but I'm going to die soon tonight when my wife, if she makes it back as well. And I see some nodding heads. (laughs) And I walk in the lobby and the manager, she comes after me, she goes, Mr. Rosenbaum, Mr. Rosenbaum. And I turned and looked. She goes, you are Mr. Rosenbaum, yes. And she said, I just got off the phone with your wife. Your, your wife and kids are okay. And I thought, oh, good. And she says, and they're on a cab right now on their way back. And they're going to be here pretty soon. And I just, this relief that hit. And what turned out is Herod's let her call the hotel. They said, just use her phone. And then the hotel arranged. They called someone. The cab picked her up, brought them back. And the hotel even paid for it, which in London was probably like 150 bucks. It was pretty cool. But so... I, I ordered like all the dinners off of the you know room service, so when they got back, there would be a feast. Just like I know you're hungry, you didn't have money, but so they made it back. But that moment when I heard that they were okay and going to get there, that news was that was the epitome of relief and joy. When I experienced that, now when we read this Christmas story today, we're going to read about some people who are on this journey that took them maybe up to two years. And we hear in scripture that we'll look at today that their response was exceeding joy. And I think what elicits exceeding joy? It's when you're expecting and waiting for something more than anything. And I think we all probably have stories that maybe remind us of that. And so let's look into the text today. And and what we're going to do is uh, in Matthew chapter 2, we already heard this in the Advent readings, but we're going to walk through it verse by verse, and then I'll, I'll break it down and, and look at what this means for us today. So here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Let's stop right there. So what we have in this story might be a very familiar story to many of you. And and we want to just stop and kind of ask some questions here of what's really happening. The Magi from the East. It was interesting, even in our staff meeting this week, we studied this passage together. And people kept, without thinking about saying like, well, it must have been weird that these three wise men just showed up and that these three kings showed up. And I'm like, are you guys just singing the song? Where does it say three in here? But it's, but it's because we looked at the manger scene so, you know, that we have in our houses. That's how we know there's three. And so, um, but so these magi, it says, show up. And the first thing that we see in this story is that God reaches out to very unlikely people. Now, who are the magi is something worth knowing. Now, magi is a Greek word that literally it's, it refers to magicians. So it isn't three kings coming from the east, as our song says. It's three magicians, how they're described. Often, what this probably relates to is, is wise men can be a good interpretation too, uh, because it related to in the east, 
probably in Persia, all the way down through Arabia, there was a position of, of wise men. These were counselors to the king. And these were people who, who were supposed to have wisdom and insight. Now the magicians, or these were most likely known as astrologers. These were people who were known to study the stars to try to interpret it and come up with ideas of what it meant. So specifically now what we have here in this story is, is people who were coming from the east and they were known to be people who study stars. Now, the thing about that is that in the ancient world that where they came from in particular, people gave a lot of credibility to them. They said, if anyone understands how to study the stars and interpret the signs in the sky, it's the magi in the east. So, interesting that they see a star and show up. Now, here's what's unlikely about God reaching these people. Is, Scripture teaches that you're not to engage or involve yourself in the study of stars for the purpose of interpreting signs and wonders. And the, one, the reason is this, is because what happens is we're actually attributing divine characteristics to created things. We're attributing, saying that the stars have the ability, the universe is sending us a message in the stars. And what happens is we start putting this divine attribute to created things. We're worshiping creation, not the creator. And so scripture tells us throughout, the writers of scripture in the Old Testament refer to and say, hey, the astrologers, the magicians, those who are practicing divination, those are on the outside of what God is asking you to uh, uh, people who are on the outside of God's plan and are not, you're not to participate with this. Don't associate with that because that's people who are worshiping the creation, not the creator. In fact, here's a collection of verses out of Deuteronomy. I have it on the screen for you. It says this, Do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations. The nations, that you will dis- the nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery and divination. Talking about those who you practice signs and wonders and study the stars. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do these things. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. So, the Christmas story begins by saying, Jesus is born and those who are detestable to the Lord show up. <laughs> Unlikely people show up on the scene. You see, because it's so easy in our minds and in our worlds to say, God, these are the people who are detestable to you. These are the people who are unreachable to you. These are the people who don't measure up to who you are, so let's just put them aside and reach the reachable. But the Christmas story begins when God comes down, He says, no, I'm going to start with a detestable. I'm going to start with those on the outside. We'll even see next week with the shepherds, the unclean ones. The story of Christmas starts there. Unlikely people. The other thing we learn here is in the first few verses is God uses very unlikely means. They see some sort of star, some sort of appearance. Now, I don't want to get into, there's, there's whole documentaries on what could this have been. And I believe that there's some really interesting ideas and there are, there are some things that it could have been. And I'll give you one idea. But the, please don't think that that's the point of the story. The point of the story isn't a star. The point is that people who like to read the stars, as signs, got a message. And that stirred their hearts. 
Now, we do know, through looking through history, that there was this really strange occurrence that happened somewhere around a year to two years before the birth of Christ, most likely. And it's an alignment that only happens every 800 years. So astrologers can trace it back. And it's an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, which were known to um, represent and indicate deity. They would, when those planets aligned in the ancient world, it was very significant. And they aligned about a year and a half to two years before Jesus was born. And so if you are an astronomer in the east, and you're studying the, sky, the skies... You're looking for signs and you see an alignment that happened 800 years prior and won't happen for another 800 years. And you see that they started searching and saying, what could this mean? Because stars often for them would indicate and represent the rise and the fall of kings and new leaders. So they started searching and they started saying, what might this indicate? Now, I don't know what led them to believe that it was a king of the Jews in a western nation from where they lived. Except for, we just here studied a series called the book of Ezra, right before our Christmas series. Ezra takes place roughly in this region where the Magi were coming from. It is likely that there was a a continued history of some uh, Jewish, uh, certainly Jewish people and leaders. We know that many of them are high up in the Persian Empire. Many stayed there. And there was at least sacred writings that still existed in that region. In fact, in Yemen, the country of Yemen today, back in that time was 100% led by Jewish people. About the same time. Really interesting history that in the entire East had a strong Jewish influence. So it would be possible that there were scriptures that they would study. So somehow, these Magi see a sign that says there's a new king born somewhere, and they start searching and asking, what could this mean? Could it be that there's, uh, there's things that pointed to them? Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, says, Out of you, O Jacob, not now, but soon, there'll be a star, the star will arise in his kingdom will come forth. Could it be that scripture like that said, huh, here's a prophecy about this nation. What does that mean? And they start studying and saying, could there be a new king? Possibly. Whatever it was, we know that their hearts were, were drawn, they were stirred, and God used unconventional means to stir their hearts. And they began the journey. Now, we don't really know how long the journey took, for them to get there. At one point we know from the time they first saw the sign to the sign that to the time when Herod realized that they've been duped and we'll get to that in a moment, it had been about 2 years. And so somewhere in that a sign appears and they go to find Jesus. Study scriptures, begin the journey, the 500-mile journey or more to find Jesus. Now, so that's where we are. God uses un, meets unlikely people and uses unlikely ways. Now let's continue the story. And, and I often think of unlikely ways and think of how, I don't know about you, but how many of you encountered Christ in ways that you say, maybe that wasn't all that ordinary. That wasn't an ordinary way. I know for me, I was in high school and literally this is how it happened. My, um, I wanted to go to a Motley Crue concert which was, I think, a Christian band from the 80s. Um, (laughs) You know, smoking in the boys' room and songs like that. Great, uplifting songs. And and so I wanted to go to that concert. My mom wanted me to go to this outreach event for the youth at a church. And I said, I'm not going to a church event. 
And she said, well, okay, let's make a deal. You got to go to the church event and I'll let you go to the Motley Crue concert. And it was a two-day church event. And I said, I'll go one day. And so I, didn't, I only went one day. So I went to the Motley Crue concert and then I had to go to a youth event. And that was the first time when I really experienced and looked around and heard the message of Jesus in a way that made sense to me. And it began a year-long journey for me to become a Christian. See, God sometimes uses unconventional ways. And I, I still haven't written to and thanked the leaders of Motley Crue for my salvation, but I will. <laughs> okay, so verse 4, Matthew chapter 2. God uses unlikely, meets unlikely people in sometimes unlikely ways. Verse 4, he says this. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes and all the people, Herod inquired of them to where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least of the leaders of Judah. For out of you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the next thing that we see here is... There's an encounter now of the Magi appear in Jerusalem and they go to Herod. Now Herod, this is Herod the Great, not the one who was what we read about later in the New Testament. Herod the Great died soon after the birth of Jesus. But they go to Herod in Jerusalem. Now why would these Magi go to Herod in Jerusalem as a, as a question? And one, because Jerusalem was a capital. And if they believed a new king of the Jews was born, where would you go to find the king of the Jews? You'd go to the king's house. Because you would assume, if there's a new king born, the king just had a new son. So they go to the king. Now, they arrive and they've been noticed. So they're probably traveling in a pretty large entourage. They have a lot of wealth. They're, they have people to protect them, people to travel. Um, and so they go to Herod. And they say, hey, we've come to worship the king of the Jews who was just born. So Herod hears this and he's troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him, Scripture tells us, the writer here, Matthew tells us. And what we see now is, why would Herod be so troubled at this? He knew he didn't have a son. But because if there's a new king born, if Jesus is king, that means no one else can be. If a new king is coming, the current king is in trouble. Now, someone maybe in their right mind would think, if you were Herod, you'd say, no, actually, I'm king, and I don't have any, no one's been born, I'm not worried about this. But he's troubled. He's scared at this situation. Something happened. Now, in history, we know that Herod was a nutter. This guy was crazy. He, he was very paranoid. He had his own, one of his wives and two of his kids killed because he thought that they were trying to take over his throne. Later, he, he found out it was just a rumor, and he's, my bad. Um, but so... But we know that he did that. He used to have spies in the marketplace who would walk around and listen for people bad-talking him. And they'd say stuff like, oh, we just hate King Herod. He's, he's so crazy. He would find out who those people are and have them killed. Herod was a very paranoid leader, according to ancient historians. So you take a paranoid leader who literally, this is the other thing, he issued a decree that when he, was, when he died, he wanted to fill up one of the, uh, essentially one of the stadiums in Jerusalem, one of the Roman hippodromes, fill it up with noblemen and women and have them all murdered when he died so that there would be mourning in Israel upon his death. Literally, that's a decree that he issued. 
Now, he died and they decided not to follow through on his command. But we have this recorded in history. This guy was crazy. So now you take that person and you have someone come to him with some respect, these noblemen from the east who say, we read the stars and there's a new king born. And Herod knows if there's a new king, there can only be one. So if Jesus is king, he cannot be. He responds with paranoia. In fact, actually, he responds being very manipulative, right? He looks at them and he, first he, he gathers together the teachers of the law and he says, where is the Messiah to be born? Which we'll look at it in a moment. Because what he understood at this point was there was something already happening in Jerusalem. Now likely the timeline here is this. We, the night of Jesus' birth, which we'll study next week, we'll see that the angels appear to the shepherds and say, hey, there's a new, the Messiah has been born. God has come to us. And it says in that passage, the shepherds began telling everyone about it. Eight days after Jesus was born, he was presented in the temple, and a guy named Simeon held Jesus in his arms and said, I finally can die in peace because I'm seeing the Messiah in my arms. So there's rumors spreading around Jerusalem at this point saying, could it be that the Messiah has been born. They're already thinking about it. Herod would have known of this. So now you have Magi from the east show up and say, hey, the king of the Jews is born. And he, he looks at his teachers of the law and say, tell me, let's find out where this person is supposed to be born. Now, why would he want to know that? He needed confirmation because he heard someone just said a Messiah was born in Bethlehem. Now these Magi from the east are saying they read the signs in the stars, saying that there's a new king. What is going on? What does scripture say? Could it be true? And they read and they see this. I have this on the screen for you. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is what Matthew is quoting. I think I have it on the screen for you. Yeah, there we have. So it says, As for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This is not an ordinary person. From days of eternity, someone ancient has been born. The only person from eternity is God, has now come to earth in the form of man. That's the prophecy written hundreds of years before this time. Herod finds this out. And he goes to the Magi and he says, Hey Magi, why don't you go and, and find this child and then let me know because I want to go worship him too. What a nice guy. I mean, that's just devout right there, right? I would love to worship this Messiah. Go find him. Why did he not just send his soldiers to go find him? We also know that Herod was afraid of the people. And if truly there was a strong belief that the Messiah was born and he sent in his soldiers, he would be risking a new rebellion, one that he probably wouldn't overcome. He had to do this in a sneaky way. He had to find a different way in. So he sends them. You know, even in this alone, when our teaching team was studying this passage, one of the things we talked about is this. This story here, this conflict, this striving, this manipulation, all of this just shows us like Christmas, this Christmas story reveals to us why God came down in the first place. The human condition was one that is messed up. God had to come down. Even in the story, we see it. So Herod's afraid because Jesus was king, and the other thing was because Jesus is Messiah. And get this if, this, if Jesus was Messiah, 
coming to earth this way to the unclean shepherds, to the smallest of tribes in Bethlehem, born in a manger, appearing, uh, his sign appearing to the detestable astronomers, astrologers. If this is the Messiah, then things were going to be different than what people expected. And all of Jerusalem was stirred up. And they're saying, wait a minute, why didn't he? Why didn't he come to the priests first? Why wasn't he born in the temple? Why isn't he royalty? Why why is this Messiah different than what we are looking for? Could it be that God says, everything you expect, I'm going to change. And the story of God coming down on Christmas was he flipped everything upside down. So if Jesus is king, no one else can be. And if Jesus is Messiah, then things are different. What are the things that we think through in the Christmas story or we expect of Jesus to do for us? And he says, no, 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 no. Your ways are not my ways. What what kind of boxes do we try to squeeze God into and say, I've got great plans for you, Lord. (laughs) And he says, no, no, but you forget. I've got a better plan. And sometimes it's really bizarre. That's what God coming down tells us. The story continues. So, the, so Herod sends the Magi off and says, go, go find this child. Let's worship him. Verse 7 now. Then Herod, uh, this is, Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So he's trying to figure out, okay, so how old would this child be? We don't really know, but somewhere at least no older than the time when you first saw the star. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, so when you found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went on their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it stood over the place where the child was. Now, again, now this brings up new questions. Is this the same planetary alignment? I don't, I don't think so. What is this appearance? I don't know. One other interesting note is according to the um, Chinese astrological calendar, which is actually known as one of the most accurate in the world, there was this unique comet that appeared about the same time. Um, And they they can trace when they see these things. About somewhere around here, two years after those planets aligned, you could see this comet in the sky. And from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is only five miles, by the way, so it's, it's, it's really not that far. From here to La Costa. And... They, from Jerusalem, that comet would be roughly in the direction of Bethlehem. Is that what they saw? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Whatever it was, was it the appearance stirred their hearts and made them say, that's right, we're going in the right direction. And when they saw this star in verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country going another way. So what do we learn here at the end here? The end of the story. What are some of the lessons we see? First of all, notice they rejoice with great joy. I think of Christmas, and one of the things I love about it is is giving gifts to kids. Once you have kids and you get to give them gifts on Christmas morning, it is so fun to see them respond in joy. It's so fun to see, we, we call it the magic of Christmas. You know, they wake up in the morning and they, they, they see whatever's under the tree and 
all of that, and they just, I love, my wife and I love staying up in bed just to mess with them, but we also love to listen to them talk about what they see. It's great joy as a parent to see your kids rejoice. It brings us joy. And the reason why is this. Because when they're joyful about what they get, uh, Karl Barth once said this, that joy is the simplest form of gratitude. The Magi respond with great joy when they find Jesus. And joy is one of the simplest forms of gratitude. They're thankful that God had led them to this place and they saw Son of God in flesh and it confirmed to them that their journey was not in vain and whatever happened to get them there, got them there and they see this child and they say there's something different about him and they rejoice with great joy. I love that description. And for me, it, it did take becoming a parent, I think, to really understand how fun it was and what it must mean to the, our Father God when we have great joy about Jesus. Something simple like a gift under the tree for your own kids. They have this joy and you kind of feel as a parent, they're thankful. I love that. I remember the year when um, our, we only had one, and uh, so it was our oldest, and um, and we were heading up to, Chris, uh, up to Washington State to be with family on Christmas morning. We were leaving kind of early in the morning, about like 10 or something. And we had given him a present. Well, that's early, you know, to get to the airport. Okay, so, um, so we, uh, the night before, he got to open one gift on Christmas Eve. But then that morning, we didn't have any presents for him. Because we said, we're going to grandparents, and he's little, and that's going to be ridiculous anyway. We'll have too much. But then we started, my wife and I started looking at each other, and we felt bad. It was like 6 in the morning. We were getting ready to, and we were like, he's going to wake up pretty soon and not have one present. And we, we kind of felt bad about that. So I went to Ralph's and bought a box of Captain Crunch and wrapped it up. <laughs> it was like, Merry Christmas. I mean, we were trying to keep his expectations low, too. So as he got older, he knew, like, oh, I got lucky charms this year. What a great... My parents are awesome. Um, <laughs> but, but even that, the, the thing was, we wanted him to come downstairs and just experience the joy. And I think not really no, so much for him, but for us. And again, think of how the Father God looks at us when we respond to Jesus with great joy. Gratitude. Thank you so much for Jesus. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Christmas story, it's so familiar, I forget how great this is that God came down. And I don't always respond with joy and celebration. God, you came down into this mess and you're changing everything because of it. You came down into this mess with messy people like me. God, we're so grateful for Jesus. Respond with joy is a lesson we learned here. The next thing that we learned, the final thing for this morning is this. When they saw Jesus, they fell down to the ground and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. See, when we reflect on the story that God came down, we should be able to have joy. We should also, the natural response should be worship. It should be worship. And I don't just mean singing the song. That's a great form of worship. That's actually more of expressing gratitude. That's a good thing. And we, we're going to do that in a moment. 
But worship is bowing down. It's interesting, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 7, it it says, kings and princes will rise up and bow down before you, the God and Savior. Isaiah 45, verses 21 through 24 says, I am the only God and Savior. There is no other. Every knee will bow down before me. Prophecy about the Messiah. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Isn't it great in the very first Christmas story, we have people from the east who are not Jewish, who are studying the stars, who come and when they see Jesus, they bow and worship. They adore. Do we bow and adore? And say, Jesus, we bow before you because you are king, we are not. You are Lord, we are not. This Christmas season, as we reflect on the message that God came down, can we reflect and be people who say, we make you Lord of our lives. You are the king. Some of you in this room here today have never done that in your life where you've never bowed and said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to respond to the message that you came down to bring life. You see, this is the beginning of a journey. This is the beginning of a story. When we read the rest of the New Testament, we see how people start experiencing this new life that only comes from Jesus. So some of you this morning, maybe God's speaking to your heart and saying, will you bow before me? You might be unlikely. You might be the ones that you say, but not surely not me. He says, no, 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 no. I love the detestable. <laughs> I love that. Good news, that's who we are. And he came down for us. For others here, maybe you've already bowed your knee before Jesus and made him Lord. But when's the last time you worshipped and adored and said, Jesus, We're so grateful that you came down. We're so grateful for your grace. We're so grateful for your power in our lives. We're so grateful for your love. We want to adore you and worship you today. So I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way back up and we're going to respond with a couple of songs. And as we respond, I just want to invite you this morning, let's let the atmosphere in this place be one where we worship, where we adore where we bow our knee before God in our hearts. And let's just respond to the God who came down. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you that you go to the detestable. You go to the people on the outside. Lord, you spur the hearts of those who who seem unlikely and you draw them to you. And Lord, when we truly encounter you, the only thing we can do is bow our knee and worship. And God, sometimes it costs us something. Sometimes it makes a journey longer. Sometimes it costs us our gifts, our time, our convenience as we respond to you. But God, we want to be a community that responds to you with worship, with joy, with gratitude. And Lord, if anyone's in the place here this morning who has never bowed before you, has never confessed that you are Lord, God, would you draw their hearts to you now and speak to them? And if that's you, would you pray right now, Lord Jesus, I may not have it all together. I might not understand all the facts. 
but I want to make You Lord of my life today. Forgive me for my sins and help me follow You. Would You make that Your prayer today? God, we thank You for how good You are. And we ask now that You would receive our songs as our worship this morning. As we declare, You are God.